This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a historian, screenwriter, and author of the upcoming Alfred Hitchcock and American Architecture, Villains, Lairs, Skyscrapers, Mansions, and Motels. She founded and served as Chief Creative Officer of MILA Entertainment in Los Angeles, launched in 2018 with the goal of bringing diverse stories to the screen with a focus on women and LGBTQ plus voices, among many other accolades that we'll certainly get into and projects that are coming up as well uh beautiful welcomes to christine madrid french welcome aboard thank you this is a real pleasure yeah it's great having you on i can't wait to hear your perspective i know you've uh, told me a little bit about your background and with our discussion today it's going to be a really interesting talk i think uh but before we begin i do like to kick things off with a quote about beauty that relates to our topic and today i have one that is for listeners, you know that I tend to go into the realm of philosophy, and this time I'm actually more in the realm of film theory. So for all you film heads out there, this will be something that sounds more relatable to you, <laughs> although it is a little old. But here we go. Poets without being artists, children sometimes fix their attention on an object to the point where their concentration makes it grow larger grows so much it completely occupies their visual field, assumes a mysterious aspect, and loses all relation to its purpose. Or they repeat a word endlessly. So often it divests itself of meaning and becomes a poignant and pointless sound that makes them cry. Likewise on the screen, objects that were a few moments ago sticks of furniture or books or cloakroom tickets are transformed to the point where they take on menacing or enigmatic meanings. The theater is powerless where such emotive concentration is concerned. To endow with a poetic value that which does not yet possess it, to willfully restrict the field of vision so as to intensify expression, these are two properties that help make cinematic decor the adequate setting for modern beauty. I will reveal a little bit later who said that and what the context was here. But first, Chris, let's talk a bit about your relationship with this wonderful spooky genre. What draws you into the horror genre, especially in regards to your work? I would say, uh, and thank you, and I, you have mystified me. I do not know where that quote is from, <laughs> so I'm very <laughs> impressed. I would say horror, I'm one of those people who seek horror as comfort. Okay. So if I feel stressed out, if I feel the world is overwhelming, I want to, you know, hit the TV with a, with a, with a good show, uh, go to the movies. And there's something about horror that actually I find very relaxing, Mm, that's an interesting one there. You know, I have that too, though. It's kind of my little escape corner. Have you had this for a long time? 
You know what? I haven't. So I was thinking about it, and it really only started about 10 years ago. I moved into uh, this house, which I'll talk about a little while later. It's a 1959 Mm -hmm. A-frame in Orlando, and I think it's definitely haunted. I've had some experiences here. But once I moved in here and I had children, and I I remember the exact moment, actually, um, my mother-in-law was going to come over, and I I was just stressed out that day, I can't remember. And I watched uh, Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock's ah. Psycho from 1960, and somehow it just put me into this very relaxed state. And then ever since then, I've been, that's what I use uh, to um, to bring my, to meditate almost, I would say. I think that's a really good gateway movie to kind of find the comfort in horror. There's a tempo and a look to Psycho that I feel is a very good comfort movie. I mean, the the costumes alone. <laughs> There's a lot to marvel at in that movie. Right. Uh, okay. So I also love the fact that the house that you live in as well is about the same age as the film that seemed to have sparked the comfort that you had. And I'm, I'm very curious if maybe there's something about that too. You know, we were just like the quote I brought up, there's something about decor there as well. Do you think there's any connections there? At least uh, I, I think there must be. And I'm an architectural historian by day mm-hmm. and a horror writer at night. And so I think that there there's a lot going on there, especially with buildings and horror. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so nowadays, are there any, uh, apart from Psycho, is there any film that you go to that you're like, this is my comfort horror? Oh my gosh. Well, The Others is definitely one of the, I've seen, um, and I like repeat viewing, so I've probably seen Mm -hmm. The Others five or six times and Psycho, I don't even remember anymore. (laughs) Um, but uh, there's, I think there's a tenor. I like paranormal movies and haunted house movies. And those are the ones that I go to most often. Which then explains a little bit about the film we're going to talk about today. So could you, I mean, we all know from the title, but still, I like to get my guests to, to do a bit of an announcement. What film is our discussion about today? Today, we are going to talk about The Shining. The Shining. Yes, Stanley Kubrick's classic and divisive adaptation of Stephen King's novel. Uh, Now, I have never read the novel, so feel free to bring any of that in as you want. I just won't be able to confirm or deny anything that you say, (laughs) but I trust you on that. Uh, For anybody who has not seen The Shining yet, I have a very brief spoiler-free synopsis here that I want to give, and then we can get into the nitty gritty. Uh, So I have written here, Jack Torrance is the new caretaker of the Overlook Hotel. He has agreed to hole up in the massive mountain lodge over the brutal winter months with his wife, Wendy, and young son, Danny. The hotel will be closed during this time, but they need to be there to maintain and clean the building. It all seems very simple, but the Overlook has a dark past that hides many dark secrets. As the days become shorter and the snow grows higher, the three go from a seemingly happy family to a fractured group at odds with each other. To make matters worse, Danny is showing signs that he has the ability to shine, and the secrets hiding in the hotel have taken notice. Before long, everyone is in danger, and the hotel does everything in its power to break them apart. I think that uh, says enough without giving anything away, so if you haven't seen it, Pause now, because we're about to get into spoiler territory. So first off, thank you so much for jumping in for this episode. I know it was very short notice, and I appreciate you uh, you know, taking that on. So what speaks to you about beauty 
in regards to The Shining? Well, we could go all over the place with this one. I mean, this is a classic <laughs> movie and that I've seen numerous times. And uh, I've read the the novel, and I've even watched the 1997 uh, miniseries yes. that was written by Stephen King. So I have a, I have a lot to draw from. But in terms of beauty, well, there's so many ways you can talk about this cinematically. I mean, it is a real piece of art. It's a cin- it's mm-hmm. a cinematic piece. It's not just a movie or a film. It is definitely a piece of cinema. I mean, just the the landscape and the tenor of the story are so moving. Um, in terms of what I specialize in, I look at buildings in the horror. And so for beauty, I'm looking at the hotel, the history of the hotel, the the real hotels that inspired all of the interpretations of the story. And that's how I kind of go in a deep dive for, in these kind of films. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I know that there's been a lot of brief touch-upons and research here and there about the the real-life hotel that they use for the exterior shots for the Overlook. Uh, but I don't know much about, you know, any research into the motivations or at least uh, the inspirations, maybe like Kubrick or King himself kind of drew upon. So you have any information you might want to throw out and wow people's minds with about... Oh, I have so much. Okay, so we'll start at the beginning. <laughs> Take your pick. <laughs> so, uh, well, Stephen King's novel came out in 1977, and um, it was inspired by his stay at the Stanley Hotel, which is in Estes Park, Colorado. It's right near um, Rocky Mountain National Park, the entrance to Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, you know, he himself has told a number of varying stories about how this happened, but generally, they was living in Boulder with his wife, uh, Tabitha, briefly, and they wanted to go on an overnight. He went to this hotel. It sounds a lot like The Shining, right, when, uh-huh. I, when I tell you the story. <laughs> and uh, he got there late in the season. They were closing up for the, for the season because they do that. So if you ever go on a vacation to any of the, of the national parks out west, they do pretty much, you know, close up shop a lot in October. It snows and they can't maintain the roads. So it's actually true. Uh, So he's there. He says he was, they were the only people in the dining room eating and they were, you know, it's very scary place. And he imagined uh, his son, you know, screaming down the corridors. He imagined a dead person in the bathtub. And he said right then he knew that he had the story of The Shining. That's incredible. I love that Stephen King just never lets go of that childlike wonder when he's walking around and just a story here and a a bit of history there and just making it up as it goes along. Very cool. And what then to you is so captivating then about like the architecture, I guess, you know, there's a lot of use of the architecture in the film specifically. I don't know how they use it so much in the book, but I can imagine that it, there's a lot being said there that we might not be picking up on. Right. Well, it's it's in the haunted house genre, I would say, in a, in a lot of ways. So I just love it when the building is the character in the story. So that mm-hmm. in The Shining, that's that's very, you know, that's right in the front. The building is actually a, a, like an evil force that it, uh, impacts the characters, that changes the narrative. And in The Shining, the book, in all three versions of The Shining, I'll just say all three book, uh, <laughs> movie and, or film and the TV miniseries, all three of them, the building is right at the center. And then, mm-hmm. you know, indeed it inspired King to write the story in the first place. And then, you know, as we go along in this conversation, Chandler, we can go into, you know, 
what, what is the significance? Well, you know, people like to take apart the Kubrick, they deconstruct that Kubrick, yeah. anything that he's done that you can just go in and, you know, the calumet, you know, baking powder was facing this way and then it yeah. was facing that way, you know, and then it means the decons, you know, the destruction of the of the Native American landscape and et cetera. Uh, you can do the same thing with the buildings and not that many people have done that. And so as an architectural historian, I start getting into horror. Um, I mean, I've always been into it, so I'll tell you that story too. But when I started to really get into horror, I was like, well, what's the real story of the Stanley Hotel, right? right? And why is it is the Stanley Hotel is the inspiration, and then they use the Timberline Lodge as the filming location. Like, what is going on there, and what is, you know, the interiors in The Shining are so en- beautiful. I mean, they're enigmatic. They're so they're gorgeous. They're very distinctive. Each one is inspired by a different type of architecture, a different architect, oh. you know, a different period. So when I see a movie, I see it through a completely different lens, so to speak. I love that. I love that there's so many different lenses that you can actually pick up on. You know, like I'm looking from a philosophical lens most of the time, or maybe a, a cultural lens since my background is media and culture. Uh, I know I have a friend who looks at things from the perspective of food. What are they eating? And what does it say about a character when they're eating particular types of food? And architecture is something I think that is often overlooked, even though, huh, overlooked, uh, even though <laughs> it is, uh, it's right there in front of you. It's in every film. There's always some form of architecture and it's no accident <laughs> that the spaces are the way they are. I mean, I'm sure you can tell if they just, this is what I had, you know? <laughs> right. But even I think when you're talking about directors like Alfred Hitchcock, that I wrote a, a, a book about um, mm-hmm. his work or someone like Stanley Kubrick or maybe Wes Anderson, there's no accidents. I mean, or no. if there are, they'll just pretend it was purposeful. But there, <laughs> there is very rare to find an accident in a Kubrick film or a Hitchcock film. Everything is very intense and thought out and developed for years uh, oftentimes in their own minds. And then by the time it comes out, it's fully formed. And I think that my study of Hitchcock, you know, if you're looking at Kubrick, you can see so many influences in Kubrick's work and in Steven Spielberg's work, where you can see that Hitchcockian sort of, of reference either to architecture or, or little bits and pieces like that mystery that we like to look at when we're looking at horror. There's mm-hmm. always some little mystery that you can investigate further inside the film itself. And that's what makes it always so fascinating. It's kind of like the film itself is a house in a way. If we talk about the haunting of a house, I actually wrote a piece I say a piece. It was an essay in, in university, but it could have been a piece. Uh, I had a course that they called Enjoying the Silence. And it was all about uh, writers that in their prose either have a lack of content so that your brain kind of just fills and filters in silence. You know, people like uh, uh, Beckett, you know, those sorts of writers. But there's also, you know, people who just don't fill the page with things. And so they let the visuals of empty space kind of take over. And I wrote a piece on, uh, I don't know if you know the book House of Leaves. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I I was writing about how there's like this nihilistic core to it and how the book itself is framed like a house. There are windows in it. There are different parts of the text that create doorways, windows, all kinds of things. And just like the house in this fictional documentary that they're talking about, 
it starts to deconstruct itself and grow and shrink as you go. And it basically, and I mean, it says the moment you open the book, this is not for you. So it's trying to basically tell you, don't read this book. The book doesn't want to be read. It's just this evil thing that just wants to exist quietly without your interpretation of it. And I got that same feeling. The more you dig into Kubrick's work on The Shining, the more he's made the Overlook kind of feel like a similar structure. You know, I know that in you know Doctor Sleep they show this even better how it's been this dormant, dead building for so long, and it kind of wakes up. And that's kind of the the core to it, and that always gets me. I love when the space itself is cognizant and aware. That freaks me out a lot. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's a brand of horror that always sort of appeals to me. I don't know if uh, that kind of resonates with you as well in any way. Right. It's the sentient structure, sentient yeah. meaning that the the building is actually thinking. And I was just thinking of something funny. You know, is a building actually haunted if nobody ever visits the building? Mm-hmm. Maybe not. <laughs> like a tree falls in the forest and, you, and no, can anyone hear it? Exactly. You know, who's there to experience the ghost unless you have visitors? If we get back to The Others, which is a great movie about a sentient house, mm-hmm. it seems like because the people are there, it's really about the past. But the people are moving through this building and it just like brings you in. And so there's so much beauty in that. If we get back to the beauty of horror and, and the beauty of, of the shining. That yes, uh, th- there's that human connection that I find very beautiful here. It's like all of these spirits have this longing for life, even though they covet it to the d- degree that they want to eradicate it. There's this jealousy there, but there is something beautiful with the way it all slowly starts to happen, you know, just from down to, I loved in the documentary with room two, three, seven, I heard you make a reference to it already with the, <laughs> the, the desecration of, of uh, native American, you know, land. And I liked how like, there's that bush in the background of the office where he's having the meeting and they're like, yeah, that bush couldn't exist because of where it's located in the building. <laughs> that was amazing. You know, that I wa- I rewatched that room 237 is directed by uh, Rodney Asher in 2012. Mm. And I rewatched it last night and there were a lot of things in there I had forgotten about. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the, the mysterious bush, but that has to do with the building. So, you know, yeah. if you deconstruct the actual building, which, you know, Stephen Jacobs did a great book about Alfred Hitchcock's buildings and and took the sets like you see in room 237, mm-hmm. takes the sets and draws them out and says it's impossible for the character to go this way if it's an actual structure. Right. It, you know, and the same with that mysterious window in the in the in the manager's office, which has sunlight coming through, but actually could never be an exterior. I never even thought about that. No, when you're watching it, you don't even think about the blueprint of the building at all. But it is true if you watch them go through that front door straight into his office, and then later when they're walking around, like, isn't that where the pantry is? And then you realize, like, there's no opening there. There's no garden of any kind for that bush to be in a window. A window would just show, like, a brick wall, probably, if they put it there. And I love that those are the subtle things, as if the overlook is just kind of slowly winking one eye open and yawning throughout the whole thing. And, you know, we also get the the Grady twins showing up very, very quickly just to say hello to Danny and then walk away. Danny, I love, I love Danny's, like, from the start, like, I don't like it. It's uh, a <laughs> <laughs> don't like this place. I don't like these people. Uh, 
and his shining, of course, starts to to increase as well. Yeah, we're not giving anything away. I was going to say yeah. that in the book, the book actually starts with um, the manager takes out the blueprints of the hotel and is guiding, oh. guiding the, um, in the who would be the Jack Nicholson character, guiding him through the different aspects of the hotel. And he's like, here's the attic. Don't go in the attic. You know, here's the, the basement. <laughs> the book spends a lot more time in the basement. And as a historian, and I've been to a lot of creepy buildings, the basement is always the most fun and the most interesting, and you see it a lot in the miniseries. You don't see it at all in the in the Kubrick film. Yeah, I don't even remember a mention of a basement. There isn't, but you know, there's a scene in the Kubrick film. I think they might have had it. So it shows you. You can't even hardly catch it. it should be in room two thirty seven, right? So um, <laughs> Jack Nicholson is at the desk, and he has uh, his typewriter, and right. Wendy interrupts him, and right next to him, you'll see a scrapbook. And the scrapbook is mentioned in the Stephen King writing that that's he goes down to the basement and he's picking up all these scrapbooks. And that's partly what like sort of gets the spirits riled up. He picks up all these scrapbooks out of the basement, but you never see him go in the basement. It's a real drag. I really wanted to go in that basement. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, a, a building such as the Overlook, you would imagine that the bowels of that building have a lot of just horrible pipes and and just like cobwebs and everything. All the wonderful classics would be waiting for you underneath this beautiful Art Deco building. Uh, <laughs> which, okay, so if we're going to look in terms of beauty, you know, I've mentioned to a lot of guests for a lot of different ways. We've always picked up on different types of beauty. And in the case of The Shining, I find it the most personally indeed when it comes to the decor and the architecture. I mean, there's also the cinematic beauty of it. So Kubrick's eye is just breathtaking in this film, the way he'll turn a shot. Like I I love the moment when Jack is confronting the woman in 237. For one, the room is gorgeous. The colors are like this this turquoise kind of aquamarine color throughout the whole room. It's all very even 60s style then you have a beautiful woman who's in there as well. The music's this ethereal kind of nymph-like music as well. But then for me, the most beautiful shot is probably the most horrible shot in the entire scene. And that's when he's making out with her and you see the back of her head. If you're paying attention, you can already see that's not the same woman. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it just slowly pans out. And then to reveal it, just the camera just turns and shows the reflection in the mirror to show her face. And I love his use of mirrors in this film, but that particular turn right there just really pulled the whole thing together for me. And I think that's a sign of beautiful filmmaking, at least from my perspective. It it gets me. Uh, Are there any particular scenes that kind of jump out at you? Well, uh, to continue on on that one, I wanted to mention that bathroom. Well, for one, it's iconic. Everybody knows this kind of Art Deco green bathroom but i noticed on my last viewing of the shining that when um the little boy danny is in his apartment before they move to Mm -hmm. the overlook and you see him he's standing on a stool and he's looking in the mirror and he starts using his fingers to talk to his imaginary spirit friend Mm -hmm. the bathroom is set up in the exact same way the toilet is (gasps) to the left the sink is to the right and the shower is right behind him with the shower curtain closed. And I think that's yet one more of these Kubrickian mysteries. Like, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? The shower curtains closed. And then later his father is in the haunted room 
and the curtain opens and the ghost uh, woman comes out of that. I wanted to mention that something that I had thought about in terms of architecture was a relationship to the fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan okay. Poe, and then also the Mask of the Red Death, also yes. by Edgar Allan Poe, who is an American gothic writer from the 1830s. And he wrote a lot about architecture. And he was one of the first to do detective mysteries, like very prolific. He writes about in The Mask of the Red Death, that there are seven rooms, all in different colors and different shades. One is black, one is green, one is red, and one is orange. And this mysterious figure is walking around. It's during a basically a pandemic when people mm. have taken refuge in this big castle to party <laughs> with all of their friends <laughs> and it's ends up that um, that the, <laughs> the specter of death, who is, is the mask of the red death, is going through these rooms, ends up in the black room, everybody uh, expires. But I was thinking about that, and then I was looking at the novel again, and the beginning of Stephen King's novel starts with the, with the quote from Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely, you can trace this, like this beauty of horror, like all the way back to the beginnings of, of sort of American horror writing, which would be Edgar Allan Poe in the, in the early uh, 19th century. And you see that all over with Kubrick. So let's talk about bathrooms for a minute at the <laughs> Overlook, because there's not just the green one, there's that red bathroom. Yeah. Very distinctive that the character goes in and he's there with Grady, the the dead ghost uh, previous caretaker. And a lot of people have talked about the red bathroom. Are you familiar with it? I mean, I, and funnily enough, when we were prepping for this just beforehand, that's where I had to stop. It was, he was in that scene, but what are, what sort of conversations and what might you be referring to? Oh, okay. So in that scene, every you know, if you look it up, if you're interested in architecture, you say, "Well, that bathroom is pretty cool. I'm going to look up that bathroom." <laughs> it's very cool. You know, like that can't be possible that there's a bathroom that actually is that red. I mean, it's it's quite shocking. And so, it, a lot of people say it's inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright design. And Frank Lloyd Wright was one of the most famous American architects. Most people know his name. Um, was very prolific. Died. Um, Born actually right after the Civil War and then didn't died in nineteen fifties. Wow. So everyone says, Oh, Frank Lloyd Wright designed this bathroom. It's inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright in Arizona. Uh, so I was like, well, I don't know. I'm going to look that up. So this is where I always get in trouble, Chandler, because I, <laughs> well, maybe it's not trouble. Maybe it's good trouble, but <laughs> I never, I don't believe anything till I look it up myself. That's wise. I appreciate <laughs> Good message for everybody. Do your research, please. So I looked it up and I was, and it ends up, it is a building that is inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright. The red bathroom is in the Arizona Biltmore is the inspiration. It's in Phoenix and you can still visit it as far as I know. That building was built in 1929, but the architect is Albert Chase MacArthur. So I don't know who that is. Do you? Mm -mm. No. No. Okay. So I looked him up (laughs) because I'm like, I'm now I'm on an architecture mystery. (laughs) ends up that he grew up in a Frank Lloyd Wright house and worked for Frank Lloyd Wright and designed the building in the style of Frank Lloyd Wright using these textile blocks. Inside is this red bathroom. And so as stories go, as they change through time, it turned into this bathroom is inspired by a building designed by Frank Lloyd Wright when it's made, that's, you know, not exactly the whole truth of it. So cool. So it's kind of like a second generation of his work in a way. Ah, that I like that connection there, though. That 
you know, people have the right idea. So you can see the clear connection artistically through the, the, the vision of it, but then it, it, it's got a, its own life into it, which I think that might contribute a bit to that strikingness of a lot of the images in this film. You know, Kubrick would definitely be the kind of filmmaker to take a lot of inspiration from people's work and get close, but not so close to full pastiche. So he's going to just emulate his warped versions of different things. Cause you were saying already that the, what we see in the film, the overlook has multiple decades of architecture that are thrown into the same building for different effect. I think we can already see it with just the two bathrooms because that, yeah, that bathroom with the, the red is, it's very, I don't know, in a way it's very hyper-modern. It felt kind of like it could have been in a clockwork orange to me. <laughs> uh, and then you have the one with, you know, room 237 and that has a much more old classical Hollywood kind of vibe to it to me. You know, I, I can imagine that some sets from Hitch- Hitchcock's films that weren't in color could have had that kind of color scheme and stuff in them. Um, so what other kind of decades and stuff are we talking about here? Did you see anything that was like, do, th- this is just, you don't notice it, but this is really something quite unique. Well, yeah, so I look up everything. Um, so for, you know, I, I studied Psycho, for instance. And yeah. um, so if I, if you look up Psycho and you look up all the references, you know, people talk about the house and the motel in different terms. And I figured out that the motel must have been built in like 1937 and the house must have been built in 1898. When you're talking about The Shining, uh, you know, it's very famous that, you know, that in the very end of The Shining, it's July 4th, 1921, I believe, mm-hmm. where they, you know, they show Jack Torrance has been reabsorbed by the building, essentially, as a spirit that's now captured by the building. And so the interesting thing is that the Stanley Hotel that Stephen King was inspired by was opened on July 4th in 1909. <laughs> what? Oh, and also oh nine. It's still a nine. Oh nine, and you know <laughs> yeah. what? In the movie, they say, "Oh, this building was opened in nineteen oh nine, but really, the Timberline Lodge where they're at was opened in nineteen thirty six. So you know, they just send you all over. Yeah. It's very Hollywood, I guess. Where the, it's the time zone, but I find that mm-hmm. uh, fascinating how people talk about architecture and how you can take something and sort of smudge the timeline like that. Uh, where you're in this era and that era and you bring it together. But I had a quote from Kubrick who about this movie, and he had said that that in order to make people believe the story, it's very important to place it in something that looks totally real. That's a very interesting phrasing right there. Looks totally real. I love when somebody can give away the artifice of what they're doing and you still get tricked, you know? Just little things like the elevator with full of blood that we know it's a miniature. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a miniature. And yet he's right. It looks totally real. 100%. It totally real. I thought that was like for real. <laughs> I thought there was blood coming down the hallway. It's a, and the- <laughs> yeah, but it's a big miniature. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's not like the smallest thing in the world, but it's like a table with recreations and stuff on it. As far as I, I think I saw a shot of it where they uh, did it in, uh, you know, like fast cameras and just made sure that they used the same lenses that they used for the rest of the film to make it look nice and widescreen and larger than life. But still like the, the fact that Kubrick can look you dead in the eye and go, none of this is real. 
and yet you feel the history behind these sets that they built fresh <laughs> just from looking at really good use of exteriors and a lot of uh, good decor, which comes to my quote as well, because uh, you were curious of who this was. This quote actually came from a man by the name of Louis Arigon. And he, I, I, so, I'm so sorry for any French people. I did butcher the name. You can tell me sometime uh, on Twitter or something how to actually pronounce that name. I'm not going to say Aragon, so Aragon. Uh, and it was a essay called On Decor from 1918. So uh, I say it's a bit of film theory, and it is film theory, but it's a film theory from a perspective of poetics. So he's actually a surrealist poet from that time. And, you know, with the onset of cinema from, you know, 1895 onwards, especially in France where it kind of kicked off, all of your theorists at the time were just, they were either marveling at it or just distraught by what they were looking at because some people saw the potential for the cinema to just be this pure sense of artistry. So the surrealists thought, this is it. This is the way we manipulate reality and change it to our vision. Whereas the more commercial side of it saw this is a way to create theater in an easy to digest and cheap way to constantly show showing. So if once you make it, you make it once and then people can watch it six times a day if they want to. And that's where we started getting our feature films. I loved, so I got this from a course that I took on uh, the beautiful in film. And one section of it was for us to read a bunch of like small reviews from these French theorists and just the amount of just man crying about you're not doing it right. And this is not the way the artistry should be. And you're destroying the potential of the cinema with your stupid Nickelodeon plays. And uh, <laughs> this particular essay, though, a little, a little longer than just these blurbs. But he's talking about the the fact that if you look at the decor in a play, it's very calculated but it's it's a play you know you're sitting there you're watching half of the building <laughs> right in front of you whereas in a film just to you know, kind of what Kubrick was saying it's to look very real so all the little moving parts of it every little thing speaks to us in a different way and we also kind of take things for granted we can more easily just accept what we're looking at as part of reality when, you know, they are tiny little details that the more you look at them and the more you absorb them, you get the same feeling that you get when you watch a play, which is that calculated storytelling. Like, well, yes, the colors are here for a reason. And this book is on the table for a reason. And he was likening it to opening up that childlike mindset of how you could just be totally fixated on a toy and create an entire world around it because that was the most important thing to you. And it's because the camera forces you to look at things this way. You know, we zoom in on, well, you were talking about the, what, what was it? The, the scrapbooks. The scrapbooks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if you just have the scrapbook there and you know what you're talking about with your adaptation, it says something or just the typewriter alone, zooming in on that, it has a different language to it. So, you continue with the in, in in a lot of film theory they have a word a Russian word called ostrenani, which means to make strange. That's what the whole distortion of close ups in the cinema do. That's a part of making strange. It's using and altering our focus to create a completely different meaning. So that that's that's what this quote was all about. <laughs> 
No, I love it. I mean, now we would refer to that as in universe, but when you know okay. the shining was made, we didn't have that term in universe. But now mm-hmm. it's, you know, that's how I watch horror is I was like, I want to be in that universe. I want to be in that universe. What do I feel like today? I'm going to go back to is I think of it as time travel. So as a historian, I think it like, mm. so I was listening to some of your podcasts and you sometimes ask people like what era of horror did they grow up with? Well, I can, I'm going to time travel with you right now. And I was born in the sixties and I graduated high school in 1984 in Los Angeles. I mean, so we knew it was special when we were there, but it really was the coolest time <laughs> to be around, you know, because all this great horror uh, came out in the 70s. I went, I saw Jaws inappropriately in the theater when I was nine. Wow. Uh, so it was, Jaws is the thing that just like, it, I did not swim in the ocean for real for 30 years after that. It was oh so shocking when it came out. And then now you see it and you're like, well, that shark is cheesy. How could that ever scare anybody? But the the thing about a lot of these movies, even The Shining, The Exorcist, Jaws, these Star Wars, Psycho, these movies that made a huge cultural impacts, part of that is the exact moment in time that they landed. Right. Right. So you can't really recreate that again. So, you know, a lot of directors will say you can only see a movie for the first time once. Mm-hmm. Right. And that your experience, you can only read something the first time once is, which is why Kubrick and Hitchcock like to um, use stories that somebody else had written. You know, the Kubrick uh. says you can't do that. If you write the story, you're into it. And he wanted that amazing freshness that you get when you from the very first. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so I think that's my dog. Okay, I think she's fine now. Anyway, she probably heard. I have to tell you something scary about my house the other day. I was talking about ghosts, and my house definitely has something happened in here. And I was talking about ghosts in the backyard, and we heard like, "No, yes, no, yes." It no, was so it. scary, and I got the creep in the garage. So, just as a diversion here. Um, <laughs> This house is in Orlando. It's near Orlando. It's not exactly in Orlando. It's nearby. But it's the 1959 A-frame, but it's built at the on the driveway mm-hmm. of an old mansion um, that was built in the 19th century and was okay. demolished probably 1920. So that oh, this is just like a horror movie, right? So you turn down yeah. the old driveway, and it, and it says Pinecroft, which is what we call the house, and it has the old columns left over yeah. from the mansion the house is gone and so the our street is the old driveway to the mansion and my neighbor has her house right on top of the of the driveway and she has so she's had a full body manifestation at her oh, house oh lord yeah up it's upstairs so anyway so I like to write about horror. I like to read about horror. I actually don't have any bad dreams but when I stay at a house that's haunted that's not my own I get bad dreams. So I really think that these hmm. things can sort of penetrate you, that the building is actually, I don't know, trying to communicate with you, I guess, on some mm-hmm. level or the or the the sentience of the you know, the feeling that's inside that structure. I feel like there's a like a something happening. And you can see that in the way people interpret it in the movies. Well, actually I think it's a great uh, segue into talking about Shining a little bit since, you know, Dick Halloran does describe to Danny a little bit about how this works. 
And, you know, Danny asks, like, are there bad things here? Because he's he's noticed the good things, but he's also noticed he's not entirely comfortable either. And I like how Dick is just trying to point out what a lot of people would say to a child, you know, when they're trying to comfort you, like, well, sometimes there are bad memories that they're really sad and they're just kind of there. And I like that a lot. It really speaks to me on a lot of levels because you take away a little bit of the feeling of when we say ghosts, that we're thinking of something that is alive and human just in a different realm. I'm enough of a skeptic to go, I don't know. I haven't like had a conversation with one, so I can't (laughs) go as far as to say I know with definitive proof one way or the other, but I can totally attest to vibes and feelings. And then of course, usually when you have that feeling and you look it up, shit went down in a place, you know, that there are vibrations that stay around. Uh, I have a wonderful book over here. Oh, I need to look up the author's name real quick. Well, while you're looking that up, I can tell you that most houses have had somebody die in them. um, Mm -hmm. And the older the house, it's just a a matter of percentage. You know, people, you know, I I used to be a caretaker of Mm -hmm. of an old farmhouse here in Florida. It was built in 1895. And uh, at least three people had died in that house. It makes sense. That's how it was. <laughs> yeah, that's time, right? You know, mm-hmm. most people die at home. That's just, mm-hmm. you know, if you're lucky, you die at home. Just I heard 20%, quiet. even today, 20% of people die at their own house. There you go. There you go. So that makes sense to me, especially people who are going to spend a lot of time. I found the name here. So the book is Ghostland and American History in Haunted Places, and it's by Colin Dickey. I have yet to finish the book because I just have a very busy schedule. But uh, what I love about the book is that he tells ghost stories from a historical perspective. So he talks about them in context of who these people were and what sort of impact they left on the lives of those around them. So he also talks about that kind of oral history, the way we share stories and how the connections that we make with people also kind of create the ghosts that linger behind. So that fear that we have come from how we're told stories, but it doesn't take away from the fact that there's still an essence there. So he he really leans in on the idea that ghosts are memories. And as you said, is a house haunted if nobody's there to be haunted by it? Right. I mean, you know, if you were, if you want to time travel or you want to go in the past, where do you go first? I would say go to an old building, like right away, yeah. the smells, the sounds, the the way the light comes in through the windows. It, it can, you can immediately be transported to a, an entirely different period of time. And it also feels, maybe this is where some of the discomfort can come from, but it does feel like you've plucked it out of time almost like you've displaced it and put it in a time that it doesn't belong in. And I mean, I love old buildings, but there are definitely some sad old buildings out there. (laughs) I've been in thousands of old buildings and, you know, um, not all of them give you the creeps, right? So it's like some I've been in, you don't, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe it is the shining. Maybe we've gone full circle on the conversation, but um, <laughs> you, th- there's definitely some that I feel something is happening and other buildings, I don't feel anything. And then it doesn't matter. It's like some abandoned buildings in terrible condition don't have like a vibe. I'll just call it the vibe, you know, or the shining. Mm-hmm. And some of them definitely do. And you can feel it the minute you walk in, if you're at all sensitive to that kind of thing. Yeah. I've always had it that, you just you're walking around and you get that kind of spike and you're like, uh, 
I'm not going to stay in this room and you just got to go somewhere else because there's just something about it. I, well, you know what I found out is that sometimes it's because the house is actually tilted a little bit. And I think subconsciously oh. that the old house would be tilted. I know that happens with the house here. It's mm-hmm. very slightly off centered now because it's older and it's settling. And mm-hmm. everyone who goes in there says, that room is haunted. That room is haunted. And I th- and I started to think about it and think, well, maybe they're just like leaning sideways and it gives them a sense <laughs> of disorientation. That's uh, interesting. You know, so that might be it, which I'm sure they put in haunted horror nights over there at Universal. Oh, I'm sure that's have. part of the strategy. I'm going to have to remember that now, too. I develop uh, horror escape rooms. Now I'm going to have to tell my, uh, my colleagues, like, we've got to make the floor uneven. <laughs> so thank you for the tip. I know, right? <laughs> Well, Jan, I wanted to talk about a couple things more with yeah. the with the Shining Hotel because I think people will find this interesting only because I'm a, like an extreme building nerd. So, you know, they filmed it at the studios, but they created the exterior of The Shining is at, is at the Timberline Lodge, uh-huh. which is a lot different architecturally than the Stanley Hotel that would inspire the story. So hmm. Stanley Hotel is like a colonial revival, sort of a resort looking Okay. Hotel White with columns. And the Timberline Lodge is very much a, like a more of an old-fashioned shingled uh, wood, very robust kind of a frame, very strong. And it, the mm-hmm. background is it's at the Timberline. So if, if you're not familiar with, okay. with mountains, right, you get to a certain point of the mountain and the trees actually stop growing. At a certain point, and the rest of the mountain is bare. So this is actually at the Timberline. The mountain is bare behind it. But the interesting thing, so the Timberline Lodge is in Mount Hood, Oregon. It was designed by an architect named Gilbert Stanley Underwood, who you might not know the name, but you definitely know his buildings. Uh, So that building was designed in the 30s. Gilbert Stanley Underwood also designed what is the building that inspired the interior so let's say you walked into the Timberline Lodge. It's not yeah. going to look like it looked like in The Shining. It's a different interior. That's very yeah. Hollywood. But they, it was inspired by the Awani Hotel in Yosemite, which was also designed by the same architect. That's a great connection there. That I might explain why, although there is this weird contrast between all the white pillars and stuff on the inside and this woody exterior, that it's complementary. It does work. That's just like there's these two completely different buildings that they inspire the same story. Um, Anyway, so you're in the interior. Let's say me and you walk into the uh, Timberline Lodge of the Shining movie. Mm -hmm. We walk in and they had a, a, you know, as pointed out in room 237, a lot of uh, Native American decor inside, which represented, Mm -hmm. at least according to, to that documentary, you know, you're overtaking the, the Native American heritage and then you're appropriating it for your own uses and you're decorating, which indeed is what they did a lot in the mm-hmm. 1930s. So yeah. uh, the 1930s, that in, the Awani Hotel, which inspired that interior, um, where Jack is throwing the, the ball at the, at the wall, right, yeah. was designed in the 30s. And I believe the Works Progress Administration worked on it, which is was a make work program. You know, so artists would would paint, and anyway, it's a beautiful interior. I, I wanted to just like do kind of a shining tour, and, oh, you yeah. know, and just go to all these different places and see them in person, and and sort of just get this um, this idea of of the architecture and how well, you can really do backstory with movies this way. I mean, there's a book right there. 
I, 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 all right, speaking of books, right? Yeah. Um, I want to say, okay, so we can move right into Hitchcock for one second. Okay. So there is a thing in The Shining that I just learned last night on a, my 18th watching or whatever. And I, Room 237 pointed this out, that the typewriter that Jack is typing on changes color. Yes, it does. Yeah. goes from white to like a dark blue, like a gray, black kind of a color. Mm-hmm. What is that, right? Typewriters don't change colors. But- it's very interesting because a direct line to Hitchcock, because if you go to Psycho, it's no, it's very uh, important part of the story how Marion, her underwear, goes. Yeah. she goes from white, wearing white, when yep. before she steals the money. And then later you see her again, she's wearing black. Black, yeah. Underwear. And I just think that this is how, this is what excites me about uh, film, uh, cinema, and horror is this connection from the past to the present and how you can delve into the production designers and the art directors, which we haven't even talked about, but you know, the art director, um, I have his name right here is Les Tompkins. Mm -hmm. He ended up working on eyes wide shut and full metal jacket. Uh, The production designer of the shining is Roy Walker. And um, also the co-writer, which I always forget there was a co-writer was Mm -hmm. Diane Johnson. It was her first screenplay that she had ever written, apparently. So a lot of people really brought this vision to, to fruition. Yeah, we often give Kubrick the, the full you know scope of uh, credit here, but it, it is a definite like love letter from a lot of different people. And I, it, it kind of just continues this patchwork quality of the film. So we, we patchwork things visually, but you also patchwork it a bit from different perspectives, have different histories, have different... Uh, backgrounds that they throw in together to make this thing uh, so you thinking about the past so if we time travel yet again uh but in a different way i feel that that's a lot to do with the film so if we're thinking more in themes now which i also find a rather beautiful story being told here is that it's a story about the past so most ghost stories are as i mentioned memories tend to be what fuel ghosts and, and have have them work the Overlook has a lot of memories going on in there, which I think also is why they've chosen to pick so many different architectural styles for the different rooms is to try to give you a glimpse into these different pockets of time to show you what the basically you're in the brain of the hotel and you're, you're walking through its memories. But we also have the family. We haven't really discussed the family dynamic yet. And so we have Jack, Wendy and Danny. And this hotel dredges up their past constantly. We have Jack, who's always struggling with his alcoholism. The more they're there, the more he wants a drink. We have Wendy, who's struggling with past abuses, but also past things that she's witnessed. You know, the moment when Danny says that he has been attacked in room 237, he's so distraught, he doesn't say anything. So she just blames Jack straight up. You did this. You've hurt him in the past. And Jack's just like, what? <laughs> you were consoling me two seconds ago because I had a bad dream. And now, oh, I, while I was asleep, I abused my child. <laughs> so I, I loved, though, how all of those things are very human things to have in there because we are just products of our pasts. We're always dealing with different traumas or different considerations. Even if it's not something traumatic, we are at the very least walking around with a toolkit of information that we have built up from our experiences. And I feel that love or hate how of a, 
how this movie adapts the source material or the methods by which the director chose to make his actors do their thing. Cause there's, there's definitely a lot to discuss on that uh, for, for other discussions, I'd say even I just find something beautiful in how specifically I would, I guess, you know, both Kubrick and Diane Johnson portray human experience as both a lived experience, but also something that continues afterwards and still haunts you. I agree. That's why the movie is so compelling. I mean, how long has it been out? It came out in 1980, I think, yep. right? So how long? I mean, it's a pretty old movie now. It's like 50, 50 years wow. old. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, yeah, so it's 40 <laughs> years old. So, you know, it reminds me of some of these things have, are entering this space of like classic literature, uh, would enter where you retell the story over and over and over again. And I forget which author said this, that these very powerful stories are stories that can be told by the fireside and they mm. can just continue and continue. You could tell The Shining as a fireside story and everyone would just be fascinated uh, with that. And I find that for of the best movies that I've seen, which it, a lot of horror does, it is it gets right Get, puts you right in there. <laughs> There's, you know, you just jump in, and that is partly what Kubrick changed about um, Stephen King's novel. Is he just put you right in, and you immediately you're in a space. You're disoriented, probably at this immediacy of this universe you're suddenly in, mm-hmm. and then you're getting thrown between the past and the present, and you don't know what's real. And then suddenly you enter this sort of paranormal psychic space. And it, then it's all over from there, right? Things start appearing <laughs> yeah. and, and the ghost and the, and the guy pretends he's drinking when there's nothing there. It's just, a, it's just an amazing, it is a really beautiful film. Oh, yeah. There's just so many layers to it, too. I mean, philosophically speaking, of course, you could look at color grading. You could look at uh, the, 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 the cinematography, just the decorations alone. I, I particularly find this kind of convergence of the present and the past to be the most appealing aspect of it, I suppose. And I think that part of that also comes in one of my favorite aspects of all film. I know that like if we were in the 1900s, 1918, something like that, I would be just told I was an idiot because it had silent cinema, but I love sound design, I love sound design and I love scores for cinema And this movie does such a wonderful job of having very normal looking moments with this eerie music, just very softly playing in the background, just to let you know, you should be paying attention to what's off about the scene. Mm -hmm. And that happens more often. It's very early on. I think it's just from the moment Jack gets on the phone and says, I got the job. You hear that kind of start coming in like, well, maybe that wasn't a good thing, Jack. Uh, And, even Wendy seems a little, she doesn't seem to know how to feel about it. On the one hand, she's very happy, but I guess it's just the thought that she's going to be trapped on the snowy mountainside with this person for that amount of time. We are immediately thrust into their past and they didn't tell us anything about it just right. because of the score and Shelley Duvall's performance. That's why King didn't like the movie, at least in part, because they didn't go into that, you know, in the book. And then the miniseries goes much further into the pain of Wendy's relationship with her with her mother. Mm -hmm. And and Jack is attending AA. I I like all three versions. Uh, What I find most interesting is that you could take a blank page and come up with a story like this based on an overnight at a hotel. 
Um, but here's something funny that I saw the last time I watched the movie. At the mm-hmm. very beginning, when he gets the job, like you just said, he's he's sitting in the office, actually, of that office manager, and he's reassuring the man that Wendy's going to be fine when she's up here. He says that she's a ghost story and horror film addict. <laughs> Right. But they never mentioned that again. And I think that's so I found that really interesting because if she was really a ghost story and a horror film addict in today's telling of that same story, you'd probably follow that as a little bit of a line like, you know, okay. so the other day I live in Florida right now. So the other day I'm there was a cockroach, a giant one, huge in the bathtub while I'm taking a shower. Very psycho. (laughs) Right. And I start screeching because the thing jumped out at me and was and I get out of the shower and I see my my sons. I was like, you guys, why didn't you come save me? I was in there screaming. They said, ah, you're always screaming about something because <laughs> I'm always watching a movie, a scary movie. So it made me think in The Shining, if Wendy was really a ghost story and horror film addict, she would have taken some of this like, oh, geez, I figured this place would be haunted. That would be the way that you'd probably portray Wendy now as a more assertive uh, woman in terms of she's faced with these ghosts. She might be a little bit more like, hey, what's up with that? Like, you know, um, that was interesting. Never mention it again in the whole movie. I didn't even catch it. That's a really interesting one. I know that I say so I haven't read the book fully. I have started on it. So I read like the first chapter or second chapter. And I remember Wendy being a much more assertive character as well. She mm-hmm. has like, she's jaded. That's more how her character is. Like she has that quiet subservience just because she doesn't want to have a fight. That's pretty mm-hmm. much all it is. And I can imagine King being very upset to write such a strong character and it turned into this frail, like, why aren't you talking to me, Danny? Why aren't you paying attention? You know, like, I thought that was like the most interesting change in the characters that Danny shows up all distraught and she's like, why aren't you minding me? No, like, she's just traumatized so much that just the mere fact that her child didn't immediately do what she told him to do. She's just like panic and just goes full breakdown mode right then and there. Whereas in the book, you know, she's caring and she's wary of Jack, but she doesn't have the same intense, like her nerves are on her skin kind of thing that Kubrick made out of her. Mm-hmm. But I do think they did that to perfection. Now, now knowing that line that she's really into horror movies and books and stuff, it explains also a little bit how Jack can have this whole, okay, kind of thing when she's running around like, there's a woman in the house. She just believes Danny immediately. Like, no, there's a woman in the house. You, you got to solve it. This is true. <laughs> I just think uh, it's funny they never mention it in the movie again. Yeah, like, you think I think would. that would actually be like a like a what do they call that? Like the storyline B or something that you know she mm-hmm. dreams about all this horror stuff and then it starts coming true. That sounds pretty cool to me. Like I would want to watch that movie. Uh, you know that, and then maybe he's a skeptic and she's the believer. And you could well, I just wrote another movie right there. Are you good? You did. You did. Well, knowing Kubrick as well, I'm sure he was also looking at those tropes and he's like, I've got to make my movie my way and I'm not going to let that get into my movie. And <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, why yeah. put the line in? <laughs> yeah, but he put the line in anyway. I just yeah. I just found that really interesting. I think that, you know, um, the other things that strike me about, I, I actually am infatuated with gigantic kitchens. So in The Shining, okay. they have the huge hotel kitchen. You can find these gigantic kitchens also in churches sometimes, you know. Yeah. the community spaces will have huge pots and pans. I don't know why I find this so so beautiful and amazing, but the the kitchen in The Shining, in the, the locked refrigerator and all the spaces there, and she's trying to make her little dinner and then she has to yeah. cart the dinner, uh, you know, on the cart back to their apartment. 
it's such a it's such a it's this very haunting space to me that it's all white but it's still horrific which is also hitchcockian you know he used white for the shower so there's this uh-huh. kind of aspect of the of of the the brightly lit horror Right. That, you know, in The Shining, they never once use the dark corner. So like if you're watching The Conjuring or maybe you watch Malignant with with James Wan's latest, there's always going to be like a dark corner or dark closet or Mm -hmm. something. And they pause on it just a little too long. So you think you can see something in The Shining there. There is actually no dark corners in that movie. Now you mentioned it, they they tend to only use the evening time to kind of emphasize something you know more about how dangerous it is to be outside or how you can't really escape you can't see anything but it's true they don't use it to actually create any of the scares like the grady twins are just there they're in bright light (laughs) everything's in bright light like the the weird rec room is like weirdly lit Mm -hmm. that's very 1970s by the way i can tell you from the past i'll come into you from the past that's how everything looked with that nasty kind of wood paneling and this horrible (laughs) neon lighting you know um when he's in the gold room which interestingly the gold room is actually a room at that arizona hotel so all the buildings Ah. are like connected anyway so he's in the gold room it's pretty lit you know there's no dark corners the only dark corners is when they when Wendy goes back into the ballroom and you see all the ghosts, but even the the skeletons are sitting there on the on the yeah. couch, which I never liked that part because I thought I so obvious the skeletons are just sitting there <laughs> like having a party. Now she knows yes, everybody's uh, dead. <laughs> you think she's figured it out by now? But yeah, just in case yeah. you at home have not figured it out, it's ghosts. Uh, and yeah, of course they have the. I guess the only time they really try to use it. And they don't do anything with it, so it's also a subversion, is the maze at the end of the film. Oh, you I know. forgot to talk about the maze. Well, that's we can briefly talk about that before you have to go. Yeah, okay. So the maze, uh, you made me think of it when you said that the, the bloody doors of the elevator were miniature. Yeah. I was like, well, one of the interesting things about The Shining is the way they have that miniature maze inside the, the room. And there's a yeah. famous scene like Jack is looking into the maze and suddenly he enters this surrealistic space where he sees Wendy. He sees his wife and his son real tiny inside the maze actually walking around where they actually are walking around in mm-hmm. the maze. The funny thing that brings like architecture and horror back together is that everybody wants to go visit these spaces Right. So I always found that so fascinating, like especially with Psycho at the Bates Mansion. People are dying to get in there, like literally, like they really want to go visit this place. I'm like, why Mm -hmm. do you want to visit? Because you're going to get murdered in there. But people (laughs) like, you know, go to they go to the Overlook in both of its forms. They go to the Timberline Lodge and to the Stanley Hotel and they expect to see a maze out front. And there is no maze. And so mm-hmm. I think it's the uh, I think it's the um, that Timberline one actually built a funny little maze ish kind of thing that people could walk through because so oh. many tourists were come and they're like, where's the maze? I want to be I came here to see the maze and there's no maze. Oh, so that, that was just a, a film set they put together then, I, I, I assume, to, to get that effect. Yeah, very effective. But in theory, I suppose it replaced the 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 topiary animals that are in the book which okay. are a big feature of the book. The topiary animals are come to life and, and chase the chase them down and, and threaten them whenever they leave the building. Oh, that sounds terrifying. Mm. That would have been cool. <laughs> movie. I would love <laughs> got to see that one day. Uh, the, the, the altered cut 
Oh, I forgot Kubrick's uh, The Shining. All right. Um, so I know we we're a little short on time today. So was there anything that you had in your notes that you absolutely wanted to get out before we wrapped up? I would say, well, I didn't get, I know you've asked your other guests, how did you begin your uh, early horror experiences? Oh, yeah. And one of the things that definitely, it was Jaws, but I also, I noticed a lot of your guests say the same thing. You grow up and you're watching these shows on TV, probably, mm. you know, on they used to do them on Saturday morning, old days when yeah. we had three channels. But um, I think a lot of people watch The Shining as children on TV. <laughs> and that's why they, they it's a gateway, it's a gateway horror. So the other day I was watching House of a Thousand Corpses with my son. Nice. And he goes, he goes, mom, he goes, this is not a gateway horror. He goes, this is pretty, <laughs> this is advanced horror. <laughs> Right. You do not watch that if you are not ready for the no. whole thing, because that movie throws everything at you. But even that one has these amazingly like this is why I think horror is so beautiful, is that even House of a Thousand Corpses, which is directed by Rob Zombie, and I believe he wrote it as well. Mm-hmm. has references to so many other horror movies in it, uh, in especially like the whole history of Ed Gein, who, in, yeah. who was a real um, killer in um, Wisconsin who inspired so much horror, um, including Psycho. And he did indeed dress up uh, in ladies' skin and dance around. It's in the newspaper. They yep. talk about it. So horror you can you can do a little gateway horror like i would think the others is very mild the paranormal there are so many genres that you can explore like i like paranormal with demonic possession that's kind of my area and haunted mansions but somebody and i'm maybe a little bit slasher here and there but some people are into like torture porn and stuff like that like i can only watch like saw number one like i can't go past that right that's (laughs) not much of a torture porn is why it's more of a psychological horror film than than, you know it's got a bit of violence in it but yeah it's it's i can't do too much of the gore stuff like house of a thousand corpses i got to the end i'm like i'm good (laughs) 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 but anyway but there's a genre for everybody in horror you can be all the way in you can be mild you can take a tiptoe into the into the topic and you can pop right back out and and i do think that you know children are actually fascinated with horror but we don't call it that when you're you know but you're scaring kids right from the very first moment if you're reading any of those fairy tales all that stuff is is really a very mild version of a horror story. Wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, that's how I got started with a lot of it as well. Fairy tales with, uh, I mean, I grew up in the nineties, so we had a lot of like cinema fun- fantastique everywhere. You know, everything had some sort of tinge of darkness to it or uh, a lot of eighties cinema is what I grew up with. So even stuff like the never ending story is one of the best children's horror movies ever made. If you think about it. Uh, and that's just because the, the powerful feeling that we get from being scared, the things that we can learn from our fear responses, you can explore really well as a child, as long as you have some sort of tether point to remind you that your emotions are yours. <laughs> like it's just, it's not necessarily that there is a threat. This is how the human body works. And I think it's just that fascination with discovering who you are and what it means to be a person that brings us to the horror genre or repels us from it. I suppose you do have plenty of people as somebody who hosts many people in a horror environment every single day, the amount of people who come in going like, I, 
I don't know why you booked this. I don't know why I'm here. Uh, they walk out just changed. They've had an experience that they've been sheltered from their entire lives. And now they were actually confronted with a situation where they were like, how do I respond in a crisis? So I think that's a very healthy thing to have. That's why fairy tales exist in the first place was to teach. I mean, I think a lot of fairy tales weren't intended for children, but they were just very simple ways of telling like survival tactics to each other. And uh, yeah, you, you kind of needed it back then, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. When you can just go into another place, like, you know, like I don't really like musicals. Right. So if I right. took a musical person to my horror, they would hate what I'm watching and I don't really like what they're watching <laughs> either. But I mean, that's part of what exploring, I think art and cinema and, and all these things is, is about reading. You know, mm-hmm. you can, you can find what you really love and you can go all the way into it. It's the beauty of the arts, really a, a wider beauty for it all. Oh, I love it. That's a, that is a nice way to cap off, I think. So then uh, we are going to wrap things up. This podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Screen pod squad, so be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Screen podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including 28 Days Ladyer, hosted by Sophie and Hannah Day, The Road to Nowhere, hosted by R.C. Hara, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. Now, if you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, which is shockaholic org, which is finally getting reviews. Uh, you've mentioned Malignant. I have a spoiler-free review that I put up recently on that, and spoiler review is coming up soon with all my thoughts. But dear listeners, what are your thoughts on The Shining? I would say specifically in regards to beauty, if you can, but I'd love to hear your thoughts either on Twitter at beautyhorrorpod, via email at our beautyhorrorpod at gmail.com address, and in our newly formed community space on Discord. So be sure to check out the Twitter page to find the link to the server. I want to thank you again, Chris, for sitting down with me to talk about such a seminal film, but also one that is so rich with you know, imagery and sound and so many other things. I think we could have gone on and on and on and on and on and still wouldn't have even touched the surface. If we talk about beauty in any Kubrick film, but specifically this one, it's so robust. So thank you very much. Uh, Do you have anything going on that you would like to plug and where can the people find you on the interwebs? Oh, yes, definitely. You can follow me on Twitter at Madrid French, M-A-D-R-I-D-F-R-E-N-C-H. On Instagram, I'm Madam Historian. And uh, my haunted house has its own uh, Instagram. It's Pinecroft A-Frame. And also, I will be speaking at a the first uh, annual HitchCon, which is a conference all about Hitchcock. It's going to be oh. virtual. And oh. that is uh, starting October 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And we have some pretty major people, uh, uh, Hitchcock scholars talking. And you can get tickets, uh, only $25 for all three days at Hitchcon.org. Oh, that is exciting. I don't know why that hasn't been done before. Oh, and keep an eye out for my book, too. I forgot to add that, but that's not coming out till um, October uh, 2022, but perfect timing because I plan to terrify everybody with some new stories about Hitchcock and architecture. Excellent. So just to reiterate to everybody at home, what's the name of that book again that they should look for? 
It's Alfred Hitchcock and American architecture, villains, layers, skyscrapers, mansions, and motels. Oh, yes. I'm looking forward to that. So uh, I'm definitely going to have to hit you up uh, when it's time to find out where I can uh, purchase my own copy of that. Uh, so thank you again. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. Squad.